Welcome, Warner, to a special episode of Veteran Voices. On the 2nd of August, we hosted retired Brigadier General Don Bacon at our headquarters, and he spoke to us about his career arc and transition out of the military. Stay tuned for the conversation. My name is Greg Ham. I am Warner's Vice President of Recruiting. My pleasure today to uh, introduce Congressman Don Bacon. Uh, I'm going to go over his lengthy resume. Oh, you could you could abbreviate it. A little yeah, bit. okay, Sorry. I'll abbreviate, it, sir. Uh, General Bacon en- entered the Air Force in 1985. That makes him officially old. Um, he served numerous operational staff assignments at the base level, numbered Air Force, and headquarters of the U.S. Air Force. His assignments include command. Commander of the 55th Wing Offutt Air Force Base here in Nebraska, 435th Air Base Wing, Rammstein Air Base, Germany, Chief of Special Operations and Intelligence Information, Multinational Force, Iraq, Commander of the 55th Electronic Combat Group in Arizona, and Executive Officer to the Chief of Warfighting, Integration, and Chief Information Officer, Secretary of the Air Force, Washington, D.C., General Bacon was also a flight evaluator, instructor, and master navigator um, with more than 1,700 flying hours. Uh, Now General Bacon continues his service to the country as congressman of our very own 2nd District here in Nebraska. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome General Bacon to the stage. Real honor to be at Warner's. I want to thank you for what you do for our country. You know, uh, our transportation system is so important to the strongest economy in the world. Uh, We can't do without our trucking uh, capabilities and you know as a supporter of the infrastructure bill because our commerce depends on it exports depend on it our public safety uh, depends on having a good uh, good logistics and good in- infrastructure uh, i think our economic vitality depends on it but i want to thank you for your doing i've heard some of the stats today 10,000 truck drivers 13,000 employees and the starting job opportunities for people coming out of high school or 20, at least 21. I like to blow it to 18, by the way. I feel like uh, I was telling people I was driving trucks, grain trucks at 13. So I think we can do it. <laughs> but I really want to thank you up front. Thanks for having me here today. I've enjoyed the relationship with the Warner leadership team since I retired out of the, out of the military. So uh, thanks for having me back. So I was asked today to speak a little bit about why I joined the military. What was the transition like? What I'm doing now? And uh, then we'll take some questions. but. I'm a patriot. I love reading about our country. So I got a, my grandmother gave me a World War II book when I was 10 years old. I think I read it like 20 times. And so I was fascinated by our war history, but then I got very fascinated too with our political history. So I love reading about Eisenhower, Grant. I love Lincoln. I'm reading, just finished a book on Lincoln. Now I'm reading a book on both Roosevelt's. I just love this stuff. I believe we live in the greatest country in the world, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Right, I'm a American exceptionalist. I think we're blessed with our freedoms. Uh, in fact, we help redefine freedoms because there was democracy 2,000, 3,000 years ago, but we lost it, and it was really our country that put it back. Right? I think I'm, we're also great or blessed with our opportunities. I know people who started with nothing and created tremendous wealth. I had a, a my dad took in a Vietnamese fellow in 1975 as a Vietnamese Marine. So 25 or so years old, had a suitcase, couldn't even speak English. He retired as a millionaire, had, was a CEO of a company of 500 plus employees. America, the American dream is alive and well. And uh, I would say, furthermore, I, I love the fact that we try to provide equality under the law. We're not perfect because we're humans, but we work on it. We have freedom of the press, freedom of the media to 
critique it, or we don't get it right. So we can be always, you know, self-improve. But my point is, I love our country, and it's worth defending. And so it motivated me to want to get involved. Uh, when I, I worked on the farm until I was 21 years old, and we had corn and soybeans, beef, uh, beef cattle. And at 21, I, I, I started to figure what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I didn't like accounting. <laughs> I didn't like, I tried computer software programming. That was boring. Sorry, no offense to those who are doing it. I tried these, I was trying different things. And yet for the, on the side, I'm reading World War II books, Korea books, Abraham Lincoln. And finally, this one guy, there was a Christian counselor or a Christian friend of my dad's, a Youth for Christ guy. He says, Dad, what are you going to do with your life? I was 21, a college graduate. I go, I don't know. He goes, well, you got a, you got a uh, autobiography there of a World War II leader. You were meant to join the military. And I got to thinking, Dad, got it. You're right. I don't know why I didn't think of this myself. So I signed up the next day after talking to my wife. <laughs> I talked to her first. So I joined the military, uh, and really, what, what did I want to do? I, I love our country. I want to defend it. I also wanted to see the world. What, what great adventures. I'm sure that's probably what motivated many people in here as veterans as well. But why did I stay in? I loved who I worked with. For 30 years, I looked to the guy and gal to my right and my left. I go, they're America's best. I just see you get people that are selfless. 99% have a great moral compass. And what those who don't, we kick out. You know, but by and large, we got people that want to serve, defend, or just great people. So I just say, I know when I'm looking out here with a bunch of veterans that you share that same heart. And I appreciate you. Thanks for your, your time defending our country as well. And um, that's why it kept me to stay in, serving with America's best. And what, what was the highlights? I loved commanding five times. I enjoyed working with a team. Uh, I, you know, I started out as obviously a lieutenant, and I think I su started supervising four people. And I started studying leadership at that point. Okay, how can I be a great leader, a boss of four people? And then I became a boss of 40. And then it was 360. And then it was 850. And then we had 8,000. And I got to be a mayor of 55,000 at Ramstein. But I got to study a lot of leadership uh, from that. And I just enjoyed it. So I commanded at Ramstein, commanded at Offutt. I did missile defense in Israel, which I love doing that as well. That was a uh, an interesting job for a poli sci major. I always tell people I was a science major. I go, well, I guess like political science. <laughs> so anyway, th those are the highlights of for me. Uh, but I wanted to share some of the leadership things that I learned because I, I worked for 15 generals. And um, one of the things I learned was we have a plan, then God has a plan. I think it's good to have a high, develop a strategy and plan where you want to go. But sometimes doors shut and other doors open. And I just say, blossom where you're planted. So I, I will tell you, I wanted to be a pilot. And I got, I was sent to navigator school and then electronic warfare school. And, but I was probably meant to do that. Uh, I kind of being top graduate at my nav school, electronic warfare school. Maybe I would have never even graduated out of UPT. Who knows? But my point being is I had a plan, but that door shut and this door opened. So I got to be a navigator, electronic warfare officer. And then what I told myself as a flyer, there's three things I do not want to do. I don't want to be an executive officer. I don't want to be a public affairs officer. And I don't want to be protocol. I did all three. <laughs> this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to weapons school, like the, you know, the Navy version of Top Gun. I wanted to go to weapons school and be the best instructor out there. I wanted to be the guy that was like known as the best RC-135 guy, the best EC-130 guy. I never did get to do that. So I went to my boss with this. I want to go to weapons school. That's my goal. I was rated the number top guy in the squadron, top flight commander. And he, and he comes back to me later that day. He goes, Don, 
You're now going to be the aide to my boss. By the way, none of us can stand the man. So we think you're the only guy that can work for this guy. And he was tough. So I ended up being this guy's aide and exec officer for a year. And he ended up getting fired. And I thought, okay, this was not fun. And the new guy came in and he says, I want you to be my guy too. I'm like, okay. And, but he was fantastic. One of the best guys I've ever worked, worked with. And from that job, a one-star general said, I want you to be my exec and aide. All right. And then his boss was a three-star. And he said, I want Don Bacon to be my exec. <laughs> so I went from not wanting to do any of that stuff. I went from Colonel, one star to three star. And then I worked for, and this guy became a four star. And I ended up going down that path. So it was this exec and aid. But here's my thing we have a plan. It's good to have a plan. But sometimes you get redirected. And so you got to, you know, so I learned that God has a plan. Then I have a plan, but God has a better plan. And just do the very best you can with the situation, the cards you're dealt. I also studied the best leaders. And I learned that trust is the most important thing for a leader to have. How do you develop trust? Well, they, people got to believe your character and know that you're selfless, that you're about the team first, right? And I think that those values remain true, no matter whether you're in the military or at Warner's, wherever we're working. Uh, to be a good supervisor, trust is important. And it all is about character. It's all about being selfless. It's about making cr- uh, courageous choices that maybe are unpopular, but it's right for the team. And so I, so when you look around, I, there's people that I trusted that would make mistakes and people give them a second and third chance because they trusted them. There were people that we didn't trust, they, but they had to be perfect because as soon as they messed up, you're like, hey, you're done. We don't, because we all knew it was about them or about their career and they were putting their own career choices over the teams. But you know, you see the best bosses, they were selfless. They'd had moral courage to make tough decisions and give you honest feedback. That's hard to do, but I learned to do it. So sometimes you got to fire someone because it's best for the big for the team as a whole. And I've seen some people that lack that courage to do it and they hurt the team because they couldn't make those tough choices. And sometimes it's, you, know, you get someone honest feedback. It's not easy. Well, if you can help a person overcome a, an issue and make the, help them be better, it's well worth it. I remember some of my best bosses where their honesty made me better. And I appreciate them about the feedback they gave. I also think of the best bosses were never satisfied with the, the status quo. They're always finding areas that they can be better in. Anybody that's satisfied with the status quo, probably time to move them on. That's what I, something I learned in, in my military career. I also found the best bosses were mentors. They spent time getting the mission done, but they also spent a lot of time developing people. And if you're only doing this, you're not developing people, you're, you're not an A leader in my book. And finally, the best leaders I've, I've met were resilient. And I just want to throw this out here, spend a little time on it. If there's going to be times where you get kicked in the stomach, you get a tough boss, you get a whatever. Sometimes it may not even be your fault. Other times it could be your fault. You got to take responsibility. But I've learned that you, you got to get back up, learn from whatever happened and get back up and go back in there and, and do it. But I have met so many people that get kicked in the gut one time or they, something happens and they just shut off or quit. And if you look at the best leaders in our country, they faced defeat and they learned from it. And I think of Abraham Lincoln, he was so unpopular as a congressman, he couldn't run for re-election. He lost his Senate race, but if he didn't do that, he would never have been president of the United States. And he, you know, from his losses, they, people knew that he was anti-slavery and he, and he became a national figure through his loss. If he would have won his Senate seat, he may not even run for president. So just think about that for a second, right? <laughs> think about Ronald Reagan who lost his primary in 1976, 
which, which made him what he was in 1980. And I could go on and on. You know, George Washington lost all his first major battles. But he learned from it. So I think this resilience, these things, so we all face defeat at times. If you can learn from it and be better from it, uh, that's good. So when I decided to retire, I wanted, wanted to get involved in politics. I was an active, a bit of an activist in high school. And so I retired back in Omaha. You know, I had 16 assignments and my two of my boys already lived here. I got four kids. They already moved here. My wife told me that she wanted to go to Omaha and she was going planning on doing it. She was hoping I was too. So uh, that was, that was the word. I'm going to Omaha. I hope you are too, Don. And uh, that was how that was the conversation went. So we, but we lived all over the world. This was the best place. The people are friendly. Economic opportunities are just great. Quality of life, standard of living, just it's, Nebraska's fantastic for all of that. But I wanted to get involved and I, I was going to I started being a, a professor at University of Bellevue or Bellevue University. I was teaching leadership, which I could talk about. I'll give you a little bit of that, but there's some funny stories about teaching leadership after being a five-time commander, but I can maybe do that during Q&A. Uh, but I wanted to get involved in politics, but I didn't know where to fit in. So I volunteered for Lee Terry. I was the commander at the base, so I knew him, and I volunteered with his campaign, and I got to see, I, my whole goal was to meet people and see where I could maybe fit in, be part of a team. And uh, by campaign forming, he ended up losing, uh, and I did not see it happening, coming. And he'd been there for 16 years, and I just never really entered my mind. And from that, I ended up getting recruited to run to there. But I was thinking about running for city council or county commissioner or maybe being a chairman of a party at a county level. I had no idea about running for Congress. And the thing that really fear, put the most fear into me is I had to raise at least a million dollars. This is a very purple district. And I'm a military guy. I don't know how much people you've, I mean, that, that, that's, that whole thought intimidated me. The most I ever contributed to anybody politically was $200. I'm like, how am I going to raise a million bucks? Right. And so that was, so I would say for those who are sort of interested in this area, the strength that veterans bring into the public service arena is your story. People want to know that, that you served in Afghanistan, that you that you've understand what the servicemen and women go through. And when you can tell that story, people want, they want that experience in there and representing them, especially at the national level. Um, and then right now we have a record low number of veterans in Congress. It's 91 right now. It's the lowest since Vietnam, by the way, in case you're, in case you're interested in that. But people want to hear that story and they want to hear about what you did in Iraq and in Afghanistan. But here's the hard part. If you want to run for office, you've got to have a lot of network, a lot of contacts in your local district. And we moved, I moved 16 times. I didn't have that breadth of contacts in Omaha. I knew a little bit because I was the base commander. And so it was very hard to figure out how to, you got, you got to get a big team to win some of these tough races. And that's, so that's the challenge is you, we don't have that Rolodex. Uh, if, by the way, I told that to high school kids today, they don't even know what a Rolodex is. <laughs> so I have to explain it. What's a Rolodex, <laughs> right? But, it's, but that's the challenge. I want to let you know. I want to tell you a story for those, and I'm a person of faith. One day I prayed, it was in February of February of 2015. I prayed, I said, Lord, I do not think I can do this. I can't, I don't think I can raise a million dollars. And you know, there's that story of Gideon that he prayed, uh, he wanted God's uh, proof that he was with him by putting the fleece on the ground and the dew. If you, you have to read the Old Testament story to get, to get the full background on that. But I said, God, I need a Gideon moment. I, I need you to show me that I can actually raise a million dollars. And this is the honest truth that like an hour later, I was walking downtown Omaha, going to a meeting uh, that was, and it was, it had nothing to do with me running for Congress, just me walking, going to another separate meeting. 
And this lady walks up to me that I knew, not she wasn't a bus driver, but I knew who she was. She goes, hey, I hear stories. You know, we've run for Congress. So I'm praying on it. She goes, I will help you raise a million dollars. And I just prayed an hour earlier. I, I need some kind of validation here that I can do this. I just, I throw that out there for you. Prayer, prayer works. <laughs> and so anyway, and I could talk more about the campaign during Q&A, but that's, but that was the challenge. And we, and, and we went from 20%, I worked for a year and I did a poll, only 20% of the people knew me. That's not a good feeling. And, uh, but we ended up uh, a month before the primary, we had, I was at 65, 35 up. And another interesting tidbit, Nancy Pelosi put in a half million dollars in my primary, Republican primary to try to beat me. So that was another interesting chapter of our election. And uh, but we ended up pulling through that. And then I ran against Brad Ashford and Brad Ashford and I have become, we're great friends, unfortunately passed away uh, about two months ago. But from this whole experience, we became some of the, one of my best friends. We sometimes talked every day for a while, but we had that campaign with him and we ended up being the only challenger Republican that went uh, and gets an incumbent that year. I'm glad I didn't know that because I didn't realize how uphill these races are. It's very hard to go up against a, an incumbent. But now I'm serving in the Armed Services Committee and I'm serving on the Ag Committee. And I just want to tell you on the Ag or the Armed Services Committee, my biggest challenge was we had a military that was had the worst training and readiness. This is in 2016, going back to 1977. And so I put a lot of emphasis I'm putting in money towards training, maintenance, improving the readiness levels of our military. And I think we've done a pretty good job there. Now we've got a new challenge, it's recruitment. And I could come back to that. I also put a lot of uh, focus on our nuclear triad. We invested so little money in our nuclear inventory, bombers, ICBMs, subs. Most of our weapon systems are 50 and 60 years old in these areas. And they're all coming due right now on a replacement. A huge bill. We should have staggered this in over time, but we did not. It's like it's we're literally the python trying to swallow a you know a, a big a big pig right there. So it's a but we're we're on the glide path to make this happen. We're doing it. We also have to have a conventional force that can counter China and Russia. And and these threats are real. We saw what Russia's doing in Ukraine, uh, and we're seeing what, what what's going on there. And we know China was looking at Taiwan. And today we're hearing threats right now because Speaker Pelosi's in Taiwan. And China's saying, actually say, we're going to do tactical strikes. That's what they just said as a response to Pelosi. So we're going to say, hopefully that does not happen. Hopefully it's just bluster. But we've got to have a good conventional force, stealth fighters. You've got to have the right naval and ground forces. Uh, you know, we've got to have the full joint team to do that. And space and cyber is very much a part of all this. I've worked a lot on electronic warfare. We have walked away from electronic warfare in the 90s. I have pretty... I want to brag on our team. I don't want to take all the credit. It's our team. It was our team that put electronic warfare back on the map uh, for DOD. We've made, we, we, we forced them a new strategy. We forced them an implementation, implementation plan. We directed them to put a two-star in charge. They wouldn't even do that, but we got a two-star charge now to run the EW program for the joint force. I've also worked a lot on ISR. That's what I did. And uh, the Air Force is going to walk away from a lot of our manned ISR. And I, I said, no, you need a mix. Current, you need, you need what we have now. You also need the fifth generation stuff. You got to have a mix of this stuff. You can't just go walk away from everything and go over here. It just doesn't work. I've worked uh, quite a bit on off at Air Force Base. You know, we got the new runway, which is going to open up in the end of September. Uh, the base had a, a billion dollars in damage from the flood. And we got all the money there right now sitting there. We got it right at a billion <laughs> in the bank for them to restore all the, or to rebuild all those buildings. 
And we also been able to get the WC-135 that does the nuclear weapons detection. We, got, we have that. We, restored, we got three aircraft to replace the old ones. And we're got, we have money to build a new DPAA headquarters. That's where they do the forensics on the MIAs. And we don't know who they are, but you do DNA testing and get them back to their homes. So we're going to get a new headquarters for them. We're going to put up a nuclear command and control headquarters uh, in a, a research thing associated with STRATCOM to, to do the command and control for our, new, for our triad. We got money for that. I'm probably missing some things, but my point is I have worked hard to, uh, and our team has worked hard to make, put Offit back on the map and, uh, and have some, some smart things that we're building up there. We're doing some things in the community because of the infrastructure bill I voted on. We have $800 million over time directed towards Epley Airfield. We're going to have a state-of-the-art air, air, airport by the time we're done. And how did this happen? Well, there was money for the East Coast, West Coast, and regions. And nobody in our region outside of Epley had a plan ready to go. So we almost got all of the Midwest money for airfields going to Epley. So sometimes it's good to be lucky. <laughs> And uh, so we're going to have direct flights in the Caribbean uh, when it's all said and done. And so I'm excited about where we're going there. We're also working with UNMC to do this surge capacity for future pandemics and to build the research center for America for pandemics right here. And it's about a two and a half billion dollar project, a thousand scientists and researchers coming in. So I'm excited, uh, but that's going to be great for, I think, Omaha to have this addition to our, our workforce and and just part, you know, part of what we have for our local economy. So those are some of the things I've worked on in, on the Armed Services Committee. I'm very focused on the Baltics, Ukraine right now. I'm the Baltic Security Chair, and I, I work a lot with Taiwan. I've actually personal friends with their foreign minister and uh, their ambassador here. They don't call ambassador out loud to, but that's what she ser- how she serves as. And I work a lot with Israel, too. I just came back from Israel. I got to meet with the foreign minister. I believe that we should have a very close relationship with them. And uh, but we can do that during Q&A, too, if people are interested. I work on the Ag Committee. We need a good farm bill, crop insurance. So I work, do a lot there. It was our initiative out of our office. I got the foot and mouth disease vaccine bank set up, which is very important for our livestock industry. So this is some of the highlights there. So maybe uh, to, there was a question, too. What do you want to do in the future? Uh, I'm hoping to be a subcommittee chairman next uh Congress, see if we're in the majority or not. And uh, but there's some I'm excited about the opportunity to serve in the Armed Services Committee as a subcommittee subcommittee chairman. And uh, so that's my heart is really on national security. So I so I love doing it. It's my passion. And so if I can be in my wheelhouse, I'd like to be in my wheelhouse uh, if I can. But long term, I want to serve in the na- national security arena. And whether it's in the Congress, there's other there's a lot of opportunities, but this is my passion, my hobby. And so in the long term, I want to fit in those areas wherever I can, whatever doors open uh, there, I'd, I'd be grateful for. So I've been asked you about some of the attributes of the military that carried over to doing this. I think leadership's important no matter where you're at. And so those leadership qualities that worked in the military are important at Warners. I think it's important, I, I, you know, the team that I work with, uh, and so I would say that up front, the things you learn in the military are very important. The work ethic we have. We know that when they say 7.30 showtime, you know, we try to be there at 7.20. 10 minutes early is on time, right? That's the way that we, that's what we were taught. I learned a lot about checklists. There's a reason you have checklists. I learned that on the farm, too. I remember my, uh, I had to back up with, my, with a truck of grain. 
you go up a thirds with the hydraulics. When I was 16, one time I thought I could maybe cheat and go up halfway. The whole truck went up. <coughs> I said, that is why we go a third. I get it now. And I never forgot that lesson, that there's a checklist for a reason, right? <laughs> but um, I would say speaking too. You know, military, we will learn how to do more informational speeches, you know, three-point speech or whatever. One of the things I had to learn, though, in the, in the politics, you got to give some of these heart, <laughs> you know, and I have to admit, that's not something you see a lot in the military. That's something that's not a natural uh, thing for me. But I think one of the beauty of it is you do get used to speaking about larger groups in the military, and I think it prepares as well for things that we do after our, our military. So I just want to th thank you again for you're part of the 6% of the nation who are veterans. And there's only 1% who served today in uniform, defending our greatest country in the world. But when they, when they move on, they, they become part of the 6%, which is what you are. So thanks for defending our country, and thanks for uh, carrying the flag for the veterans. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, Werner. If you're interested in learning more about our Veteran Associate Resource Group, shoot a note over to wevets at werner.com. That's W-E-V-E-T-S at werner.com and we'll get you some additional detail. Buckle up, drive safe, and thanks for driving blue.